See You at the Top by Zig Ziglar, Segment 2, Chapter 3. Your Self-Image, Purpose. One, to demonstrate the importance of a healthy self-image. Two, to identify the causes of a poor self-image. Three, to reveal the manifestations of a poor self-image. Four, to give you 15 methods for improving your self-image. Five, to encourage you to choose, then remain on the road to a healthy self-image. Chapter three, the thieves, genuine or counterfeit. The scene is a small neighborhood grocery store in the year 1887. A distinguished looking gentleman in his late 50s or early 60s is buying some turnip greens. He hands the clerk a $20 bill and waits for his change. The clerk accepts the money and starts to place it in the cash drawer as she makes change. However, she notices that the ink is coming off on her fingers, which are still wet from handling the turnip greens. She is shocked and pauses to consider what to do. After an instant of wrestling with the problem, she makes a decision. This is Emmanuel Ninger, a longtime friend, neighbor, and customer. Surely he would not give her a bill that was anything less than genuine. So she gave him the change and he left. Later, she had some thick second thoughts because $20 was a lot of money in 1887. She sent for the police. One policeman was confident the $20 bill was the genuine article. The other was puzzled about the ink that rubbed off. Finally, curiosity combined with the responsibility forced them to obtain a warrant to search Mr. Ninger's home. In the attic, they found the facilities for reproducing $20 bills. As a matter of fact, they found a $20 bill in the process of being printed. They also found three portraits Emmanuel Ninger had painted. Ninger was an artist and a good one. He was so good he hand-painted those $20 bills meticulously stroke by stroke. He applied the master's touch so skillfully he was able to fool everyone until a quirk of fate in the form of wet hands of a grocery store clerk exposed him. After his arrest, his portraits were sold at public auction for $16,000, over $5,000 each. The irony of the story is it took Emmanuel Ninger almost the same length of time to paint a $20 bill as it took him to paint a $5,000 portrait. Yes, this brilliant and talented man was a thief in every sense of the word. Tragically, the person he stole the most from was Emmanuel Ninger. Not only could he have been a wealthy man if he had legitimately marketed his ability, 
but he could have brought much joy and much benefits to his fellow man in the process. He was another in the endless list of thieves who steal from themselves when they try to steal from others. This thief was a snob. A second thief I'd like to tell you about is a man named Arthur Barry. He too was an unusual thief. He was a jewel thief who operated during the Roaring Twenties. Barry gained an international reputation as probably the outstanding jewel thief of all time. Not only was he a successful jewel thief, he was also a connoisseur of the fine arts. As a matter of fact, he had become a snob and and would not steal from just anyone, not Arthur Barry. Not only must his prospects have money and jewels in order for him to come calling, but their names must also be listed in the top echelons of society. It became somewhat of a status symbol to have been called on and robbed by this gentleman thief. This feeling, I hasten to add, caused the police force a great deal of embarrassment. One night, Barry was caught during a robbery and shot three times. With bullets in his body, body, splinters of glass in his eye, and suffering excruciating pain, he made a not too unexpected statement. I'm not going to do this anymore. Miraculously, he escaped and for the next three years remained outside the prison. Then a jealous woman turned him in and Barry served an 18-year sentence. When When he was released, he kept his word. He didn't go back to the life of a jewel thief. As a matter of fact, he settled in a small New England town and lived a model life. Local citizens honored him by making him the commander of a local veterans organization. Eventually, however, word leaked out that Arthur Barry, the famous jewel thief, was in their midst. Reporters from all over the country came to the little town to interview him. They asked him a number of questions, and finally one young reporter got to the very crux of the matter when he asked the most penetrating question of all. Mr. Barry, he queried, you stole from a lot of wealthy people during your years as a thief, but I'm curious to know if you remember the one who you stole the most, if you remember the one from whom you stole the most. Barry, without a moment's hesitation, said, that's easy. The man from whom I stole the most was Arthur Barry. I could have been a successful business, a baron on Wall Street, and a contributing member to society. But instead, I chose the life of a thief and spent two-thirds of my adult life behind prison bars. Yes, Arthur Barry was truly the thief who stole from himself. You know this thief? A third thief I would like to talk to you about is obviously you. I'm going to call you a thief because any person who does not believe in himself and fully utilize his ability 
is literally stealing from himself, from his loved ones, and in the process, because of reduced productivity, he also steals from society. Since no one would knowingly steal from himself or herself, it's obvious that those who steal from themselves do do it unwittingly. Nevertheless, the crime is still serious because the loss is just as great as if it were deliberately done. So the question's obvious. Are you ready to quit stealing from yourself? I'm optimistic enough to believe that you have started your climb to the top. For you and many others, this book will provide the motivation, inspiration, and knowledge to take you a long way. Let me warn you, however, your education in this field isn't complete the minute you finish the book. Your body needs nutritional food every day and your mind needs mental nourishment just as often. So keep reading and soon when you look into the mirror, you'll be looking into the eyes of an ex-thief. The telephone rings. I'm personally convinced that a healthy self-image is a starting point. The first and most important step to reaching our objectives. After all, if we don't start, it's certain we can't arrive. Perhaps this analogy will sell you on that concept. Let's play a game for a moment. Your telephone rings and the voice on the other end says, friend, don't be disturbed. I don't want to borrow any money and I have no favors to ask. I just thought I'd call you and tell you that I think you're one of the nicest persons who ever drew a breath of air. You're an asset to your profession and a credit to your community. You're the kind of person I like to be with because every time I'm around you, I feel inspired and motivated to do a better job. I wish I could see you every day because you motivate, you motivate me to be my best self. That's all I wanted to say, friend. Look forward to seeing you soon. Now, if a close friend called you and said those things to you, what kind of day would you have? Remember, you know the words are sincere because they're coming from a close friend. If you were a doctor, would you be a better doctor? If you were a teacher, would you be a better teacher? If you were a salesman, would you be a better salesman? If you were a mother, would you be a better mother? If you were a father, would you be a better father? If you were a coach, would you be a better coach? If you were an athlete, would you be a better athlete? If you were a student, would you be a better student? Would you be better? Regardless of who you are or what you do, you know in your mind you wouldn't only be better at your job, but you would be happier, wouldn't you? Say yes. Yes. One other question arises at this point. In light of the previous conversation, how much more would you know about being a doctor? How much more would you know about being a salesperson or a lawyer or a coach? How much more would you know about being a student or an athlete? How much more you know, how much more would you know if you had gotten that phone call? The answer is obvious. You wouldn't know anymore. Still, 
in your own mind, you know you would be better and happier in your job. The reason is simple. You've had a change of image. You would say, I'm an asset to my community and a credit to my profession. That old boy said so, and he's one more smart cookie. You wouldn't argue with him for one single moment. You would see yourself in a different light. Your self-image would change. And at that instant, an interesting thing happens. Your confidence goes up. And when your confidence goes up, your competence goes up at the same time. Simply stated, it means that when your image improves, your performance improves. Since you know what kind of phone, since you know what this kind of phone call would do for you, why don't you do the same thing for someone else? Why don't you put this book down and pick up the telephone, unless it's 2 a.m. or some other ridiculous hour, call that person you sincerely like and respect and tell him or her how much you appreciate who they are, what they do, and how much they mean and have meant to you. The person you call will be appreciative and you will feel good about it. Significantly, you will like yourself better as a result of helping to build someone else up. More on this later. The next story, Straight Out of Life, clearly demonstrates the importance of a healthy self-image and what happens when your self-image changes. From dunce to genius in one easy step. When Victor Serbriakov Serbriakov was 15, his teacher told him he would never finish school, that he should drop out and learn a trade. Victor took the advice and for the next 17 years, he was an itinerant doing a variety of odd jobs. He had been told he was a dunce and for 17 years he acted like one. When he was 32 years old, an amazing transformation took place. An evaluation revealed that he was a genius with an IQ of 161. Guess what? That's right. He started acting like a genius. Since that time, he's written books, secured a number of patents, and has become a successful businessman. Perhaps the most significant event for the former dropout was his election as chairman of the International Mensa Society. The Mensa Society has only one membership qualification, a minimum IQ of 140. The story of Viktor Zerebrikov makes you wonder how many geniuses we have wandering around acting like dunces because someone told them they weren't too bright. Obviously, Viktor did not suddenly acquire a tremendous amount of additional knowledge. He did not suddenly acquire a tremendous amount of added confidence. He did suddenly acquire a tremendous amount of added confidence. The result was he instantly became more effective and more productive. When he saw himself differently, he started acting differently. 
He started expecting and getting different results. Ah, yes. As a man thinketh. Just how important is your self-image? Mildred Newman and Dr. Bernard Berkowitz in their book, How to Be Your Own Best Friend, ask a penetrating question. If we cannot love ourselves, where will we draw our love for anyone else? You can't give away something you don't have. The Bible says, love thy neighbor as thyself. Is self-image important? Dorothy Jongward and Muriel James wrote a marvelous book entitled Born to Win. They point out that man was born to win, but throughout a lifetime, as a result of a negative society, he is conditioned to lose. They too stress that a healthy self-image is critical in the success parade. You cannot consistently perform in a manner that is inconsistent with the way you see yourself. Your self-image will lead you to the top of the stairway or put you on an escalator to the basement. See yourself as a capable, deserving person, and you will be, do, and have. See yourself as incapable, non-deserving, and you have not. Fortunately, regardless of how you've seen yourself in the past, you now have the motivation, method, and capacity to change, and change for the better. All the gifts our Creator gives us Surely the greatest gift of choosing the way we wish to be is one of the greatest. As we delve into our self-image, let's remember that the mind completes whatever picture we put in it. For example, a plank 12 inches wide laying on the floor would be easier to walk, would be easy to walk. Place that same plank between two 10-story buildings and walking the plank is a different matter. You see, you see yourself easily and safely walking the plank on the floor. You see yourself falling from the plank stretched between the buildings since the mind completes the picture you paint. Your feels, your fears are quite real. Many times a golfer will knock a ball into the lake or hit it out of bounds and then step back with the comment, I knew I was going to do that. His mind painted a picture and his body completed the action. On the positive side, the successful golfer knows he must see or visualize the ball going into the cup before he strokes it. The good hitter in baseball sees the ball dropping in for a base hit before he swings the bat. An excess, and a successful salesman sees the customer buying before he makes the call. Michelangelo clearly saw the mighty Moses in that block of marble before he struck the first blow. Strike three. Easily the most puzzling and disappointing incident in the sports world occurs in baseball when the batter steps up to the pitch to the plate and proceeds to let the pitcher throw three strikes without taking a single cut at the ball. Three golden opportunities 
to at least advance the runner, get on base himself, or maybe even hit a home run. And he never moves the bat from his shoulder. The reason is simple. He saw himself striking out, being put out, or maybe even hitting into a double play. He left his bat on his shoulder, hoping for a walk, a free ride to first base. Even more disappointing is to see a person in the ball game of life step up to the plate and never really take a cut at the ball. He's the biggest failure of all, according to Larry Kimsey, MD, because he doesn't try. If you try and lose, you can learn from losing, which greatly reduces the loss. Obviously, there is little you can learn from doing nothing. These people serve as their own judge and jury and sentence themselves to life in the prison of mediocrity. They never really get into the game of life and take an honest cut at the ball. They serve as their own worst enemy, the blindest umpire of all. Their self-image is that of falling, failing, or striking out. Unfortunately, their mind then completes the picture of another person's, as another person of ability joins the scrap heap of could have been. The late Dr. Maxwell Maltz, internationally famous plastic surgeon and author of self-help books that sold over 10 million copies, said this is the reason the goal of any form of psychotherapy is to change the self-image of the patient. You got to believe in you. The starting point for both success and happiness is a healthy self-image. Dr. Joyce Brothers, well-known author, columnist, and psychologist says, an individual's self-concept is the core of his personality. It affects every aspect of human behavior the ability to learn, the capacity to grow and change, the choice of friends, mates, and careers. It's no exaggeration to say that a strong, positive self-image is the best possible preparation for success in life. You must accept yourself before you can really like anyone else or before you can accept the fact that you deserve success and happiness. Motivation, goal setting, positive thinking won't work for you until you accept yourself. You must feel you deserve success, happiness, etc. before those things will be yours. The person with the poor self-image can easily see how positive thinking, goal setting, etc., would work for others, but not for himself or herself. Let me stress that I'm talking about a healthy self-acceptance, not a super inflated, I'm the greatest ego. Of the diseases known to man, conceit is the weirdest of them all. It makes everyone sick except the one who has it. Actually, The individual with a bad case of eye trouble is really suffering from an extremely poor self-image.
the hitchhiker. Since so many people are unaware of the enormous potential that lies within even an uneducated mind, I would like to share a personal experience to illustrate a point. Several years ago, I picked up a hitchhiker. As soon as he seated himself, I knew I had made a mistake because he'd been drinking little and was talking a lot. He soon revealed that he had just been released from prison where he had served 18 months for bootlegging. When I asked him if he had acquired any knowledge he could use once he was released, he enthusiastically replied he had learned the name of every country and of every county in every state in the United States, including the parishes in Louisiana. Frankly, I thought he was lying. So I challenged him to prove what he was saying. I selected South Carolina as a test state since I had lived there nearly 18 years. My writer who had a limited education presented, proceeded to demonstrate that he did know the names of all the counties in the state and was anxious to prove he knew the others as well. I have no idea why he selected this particular project and spent so much time acquiring apparently useless information. The point is, however, is that even though he was formally uneducated, his mind was capable of acquiring and storing an enormous amount of information. So is yours. But I hope you concentrate on learning and then applying usable information to life's daily opportunities. Unfortunately, many educated people never succeed in life because they are not motivated to put their imagination to work to utilize their knowledge. At one point, you need to clearly understand, one point you need to clearly understand is that education and intelligence are not the same thing. Three of the most intelligent and successful people I know finished third, fourth, finished the third, fifth, and eighth grades. Henry Ford quit school at 14. Thomas Watson, founder of IBM, went from being a $6 a week salesman to chairman of the board. Many of the successful people I mentioned through the pages of this book have even less education, yet they made it, and they made it big in this highly technical world. So a limited formal education is no excuse and certainly no reason to have a poor self-image. Obviously, education is important, but dedication is even more important. This book was not written just to educate or inform you, though I certainly expect you to learn a number of things from it. It is written to help you get rid of excuses for failure and give you reasons and methods to succeed while urging you to dedicate yourself to utilizing the potential you possess. The $100,000 failure. In many, way, in many ways, things are relevant. One man who earns $100,000 a year could well be judged a failure if he's capable of earning five times that amount. On the other hand, one who earns $20,000 a year could be an overwhelming success if he is using 
a high portion of his talents and abilities. I know talents vary, and in the ability department, we're all not created equal. I also know that none of us use all of our ability. In fact, very few of us even use most of our ability. One of my goals in this book is to convince you that you have more ability than you think and then to motivate you to use more of that ability. Earlier I mentioned earnings as a mark of success, primarily because money is a familiar yardstick by which we can measure a contribution. Regardless of what your occupation may be, there are others with the same opportunity who earn considerably less money and still others who earn a great deal more. In the final analysis, opportunity for growth and service lies with the individual. Almost without exception, you can measure a person's contribution to society in terms of dollars. The more he contributes, the more he earns. Serve now, earn later. Now, before you jump more than six feet off the ground, let me hasten to add I did say almost. I personally know some teachers who make very little money and others who earn large amounts of money. The same is true of doctors, lawyers, salesmen, ministers, truck drivers, secretaries, etc. As you view the individual, you discover that those who are earning the most money are generally making larger contributions. But there are some obvious exceptions. The dedicated teacher who chooses to remain in a remote mountain or rural area in a tenement area school is an example. He or she might be the only hope many of the children have for raising the ceilings their families might have set for them. The dedicated minister chooses to remain in a small local area because he fervently believes God chose him to serve that specific community is another. Generally speaking, however, the well-paid minister, teacher, or leader is, rendered, is rendering more service to more people. The same is true of the doctor, truck driver, or salesman. The often repeated philosophy, you can have everything in life you want if you'll just help another, enough other people get what they want is another way of saying, if you serve more, you earn more. From time to time, some of my Christian friends ask me how I reconcile my Christian beliefs with my view on money. I always smile and tell them that I believe that God made the diamonds for his folks, not Satan's crowd. All you've got to do to verify this is check the record. Read what God said in Malachi chapter 3 verse 10, Psalms chapter 1 verse 3, and 3 John chapter 2. And I believe you'll agree that money is spiritually okay. Solomon was the richest man who ever lived. Abraham had cattle on a thousand hills and Job would, have, would not have qualified for food stamps. The only admonition that God gives us is the way we must not make money 
The only admonition God gives us is that we must not make money or anything else our God because when we do, we will never be happy regardless of how much we have. We know this is true because in the past few years, several billionaires have died and most were still trying to earn more money. Someone in Dallas asked how much money Howard Hughes had left and got this answer. He left it all. That's the amount each of us will leave, isn't it? It's all right to get money, lots of it, as long as you get it in the right way and you don't let the money get you. Most people don't have money because they don't understand it. They talk about cold, hard cash, and it's neither cold nor hard. It's soft and warm. It feels good. It's color-coordinated to go with any color you might be wearing. Not once has the redhead ever had to change outfits because what she was wearing would not go with what I was carrying. Occasionally, I'll hear some, someone truthfully say they really do not want to earn large sums of money. money. Ministers, teachers, social workers, etc. But generally speaking, any person who says that will lie to you about other things too. Yes, a well-paid individual will be quite comfortable in the philosophy of this book. By the same token, the service-oriented person will also find much encouragement and comfort in the Zygmuntship philosophy. So keep reading. Regardless of your status at the moment.